This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 5th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we start with staff writer Robert Service. We're going to talk about taking carbon dioxide out of the air and turning it into gasoline for cars. Will new high-tech filters and catalysts make gas cheaper and less damaging for the environment? And I talk with Natish Padmanaban about replacing reading glasses with high-tech glasses that track eye position and change shape depending on what the wearer is looking at. Now we have Robert Service, a staff writer at Science, and he's here to talk about a feature story he wrote on, I guess you could say it's on capturing carbon dioxide from the air and turning it into fuel, but it's also about so much more, right, Bob? That's true. Yeah. So this sounds like a good thing to my naive ears. So you take carbon dioxide out of the air, and then you somehow convert it into fuel, could be alcohol, could even be gasoline. Is this an easy thing to do? The idea is basically, can we run combustion in reverse? So instead of starting with a hydrocarbon and burning it, which releases a lot of energy that we use to drive our cars or power our factories, can you do the opposite? Start with basic building blocks, CO2 and water, that are the end result of combustion, and add energy to them, and then rearrange the chemical bonds so that it creates those hydrocarbons. And that would give you a carbon-neutral fuel, because then you would burn the, the fuel it would re-release the CO2, but then you could just go around and around. You're really only using electricity. And so if you were getting that electricity from a carbon neutral source like solar power or wind power, then there you go. You've got a carbon neutral fuel. When you say combustion in reverse, it does sound like it would be difficult to do. Like you would have to put a lot of energy in to make this reaction go the way you want it to go. That's correct. 
there's no way to retrieve all the energy you're putting in. Mm-hmm. So you will lose a bunch of energy that you're trying to input into the molecules, but not all of the energy goes into those chemical bonds. Some of it is lost as heat or other things like that. Researchers are trying to develop catalysts and other systems that maximize how much energy gets stored in a fuel. This is something that chemists have known for a long time was possible. But the question is, is it likely to happen? Is it efficient? So what are some of the technologies coming online now that make this worth talking about? Well, researchers in the last couple of years have hit upon a set of copper-based catalysts that at the nanoscale are pretty efficient at combining carbon dioxide, CO2, and water, H2O, into ethanol, the alcohol in the beverages we drink. There's a variety of approaches they use, but today most of them are using these copper catalysts to try to, to knit those chemical bonds. The next component that's important to talk about after we talk about catalysts is filtering technologies. Can you talk about why this is important and what is happening in this area? So when you're making these uh, alcohol molecules, what researchers do is they dissolve CO2 from the air into water to make a molecule called carbonic acid. And this is the same very weak acid that is acidifying our oceans. And so they start with that. And then the catalyst turns that carbonic acid through a series of steps into ethanol and other alcohols. But those alcohols remain bathed in a solution that's almost all water. And so then the question becomes is, how do we get that alcohol out of the water? So what people that we're profiling in this story are working on is a new technology that's a very low energy cost way to filter out the ethanol from the water. So they've come up with a technology in which they create a membrane. In this case, these membranes are shaped like tiny hollow fibers and running perpendicular to the length of the fiber are millions and millions of tiny hollow tubes called carbon nanotubes. Now, carbon nanotubes have been around for a long time. They're sort of wonderkins of material science. But one of the things people have long sought to do with them is to use them as tiny pores in a membrane to act as a filter. Trying to scale this up into an industrial technology has been a really hard problem. And so We're profiling a company called Prometheus that is run by a scientist named Rob McGinnis, who in recent years has come up with a way, he believes, to make highly robust and durable carbon nanotube membranes. And how do those act to separate alcohols out of water? Yeah, it's kind of a cool story. Ethanol has hydrogen and carbon groups throughout the molecule. And those are attracted to the inside of the carbon nanotube. And so if you have a high enough starting concentration of ethanol, maybe 5-10% ethanol in water, all the ethanol molecules race to the insides of the carbon nanotubes and they want to be in there first. And so they basically elbow out the water molecules, which can't squeeze in. And those ethanols form a little molecular conga line and they all march through the tube to the other side. And so you get almost a pure ethanol out the other end. Now we have kind of these two components. We have the the modern catalyst and we have these special filters, these special membranes, and you're getting ethanol out the other end. 
I saw a drawing of this machine, a photo of this machine, and it's about the size of a refrigerator. How much, how much ethanol can it make? Right now, not much. So about 10 milliliters per hour. People are just now only putting all these pieces together. So Rob McGinnis has just built a new machine that synthesizes the ethanol and then filters it out. And this is only coming online just now as we speak. And so they're trying to learn how to do it more efficiently and raise the output of their machine. And what they're hoping to do is eventually add a second step of catalyst that can take those ethanol molecules and convert them to the hydrocarbons in gasoline. Longer molecules, a little bit different. And that's also a technology that's been proven, but it has to be integrated into this machine as well. Once they get it all running and operating at the levels they hope, they think that refrigerator-sized machine should be able to produce about 20 liters or five gallons of gasoline per week. So the point of that would be that you don't have to get an ethanol burning car. You can now make gas from the air and you don't have to change the infrastructure for the way fuel is supplied. Correct. From air and water, right, essentially. The trick for this to really succeed is all this has to be scaled up. Because if you can only make one machine that can make 20 liters of fuel per week, that's not all that interesting. You really have to do it on a scale that is meaningful to society as a whole. And we use trillions of liters of gasoline per year collectively in this world. So that means that raises the challenge of can you scale this up cheaply? Mm -hmm. What about the interplay with renewable energy? This seems to be something where, you know, instead of storing energy in batteries, we could convert it into gasoline. Fuels are much more dense in energy than you can store energy in a battery. Batteries are good for storing small amounts of energy, but it's really hard to store vast amounts of energy. And battery technology is changing and getting better. The price of renewables continues to drop around the world. And experts believe that trend is going to continue for decades. And so as renewables get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, they become an ever cheaper source to synthesize fuels, which is great. There's also an advantage that at certain times of the day, say in Southern California, which is really sunny, electricity costs fall very sharply. And so if you have a technology that can turn on and off very quickly and and ramp up fuel production when its input cost of electricity is very low, well, that makes it more attractive. So what are the economics here? What are the, you know, the trade-offs in terms of how carbon neutral this is, how much electricity costs, how much these machines are going to cost? It remains to be seen what the economics are. I mean, I think that's going to be the challenge that Rob McGinnis and Prometheus face is they're going to have to prove that they can sell their gasoline they make at a cost that's as cheap or maybe even cheaper than conventional fossil fuel-based gasoline. But if they can do it, there's basically an inexhaustible market out there for them. We talked about how much one of these devices could produce. What would they need to do to increase the efficiency of this process in order to get more ethanol per hour or more gas per hour? Well, one of the easy things they can do that doesn't increase the efficiency, but it increases the output is just make their catalyst larger. You have an electrode, which is a metal surface where electricity comes in, and that's coated with this copper catalyst. So you can just make that area bigger. And copper's not that expensive, so that's pretty doable. And that's one of the strategies that Prometheus is pursuing right now. How do you feel about this? I mean, this is a story that you've been working on for a long time. 
Do you feel like it's a lot of things that you've written about in the past kind of all coming together in a surprising form? It absolutely is. I think one of the things that I enjoy about this story is it shows how advances in fundamental science, such as catalysts or trying to understand the basic chemistry of how reactions work, that's been going on for some time can blossom into a commercial venture. And then that doesn't guarantee it will succeed, but that that sort of opens the door then to making a, a large societal impact. So I think what we're, we're seeing now is technology on the cusp of moving out of the lab into the real world and hopefully making a big impact on the real world. Okay. Thank you so much, Bob. You're welcome. Robert Service is a staff writer for science. You can find a link to his feature story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Natish Padmanaban about digital glasses that autofocus. I went to the eye doctor this month and my doctor told me that my eyes are getting old and I'll probably need reading glasses before the end of the year. And basically the reason is because the muscles surrounding the lens of my eye are no longer pulling it into the shape I need for me to see things up close. And there are a lot of solutions to this, reading glasses from the drugstore, bifocals, or even progressive glasses. What about glasses that change depending on whether I'm looking close or far? Natish Padmanaban and colleagues wrote about how this might work in Science Advances, and he's here to talk about it. Hi, Natish. Hi, Sarah. Okay, so... Let's first talk about how your glasses would know where you're looking. The simple way to put it is that we both have a camera that faces the world that knows where everything in the world is and a camera that faces your eyes to know where your eyes are trying to look in the world. And we calculate some information there to put it all together to estimate how far away the thing you're looking at is. Is this like the way a, a camera that has autofocus works? No, actually. So a camera that has autofocus, it, it depends on the type of camera, but they're usually looking at their blur or they have a laser rangefinder. But what we do instead is we use an Intel RealSense and that has a stereo camera. And how that works is it has two different cameras that see infrared light. And then they combine the two images such that they look at where the, the binocular disparity is and how far apart things are horizontally. And they use that to figure out how far everything else is. When we look at your eyes, we know which direction they're pointing in, but we also know that the two eyes together should point at an object. And so we can calculate the angle of the object and that tells us how far away it is too. It really is trying to see what you're looking at and how close that thing is to your eyes. Mm -hmm. And then there's an adjustment made to the lens that you're looking through. How, how is that adjusted? It's a liquid lens and it has two different little chambers inside. It's separated by a membrane. And by pushing liquid into or out of one of those chambers, you can change the shape of the membrane. And if you think about it, that membrane is really just the surface of a lens because the two liquids inside are different somehow. And so that changes the power of the lens, which gives you differing powers for whatever glasses you're wearing. They're not liquid. They're, they're not like you could poke them and they would be squishy. They're still encased in something that's hard, right? Yeah, yeah. they're totally encased in glass and metal. And that, that adds to weight, for example. But yeah. they're definitely not going to spill out if you accidentally like poke them. Okay. The research that you did here was really to show that this is something that can be as good as some of the other options that are out there. Can you talk about what other options you compared this to? 
The two biggest options we compared it to are progressive lenses and monovision lenses. And you mentioned progressives earlier. I believe they're the most common form of correcting presbyopia behind maybe reading glasses. Presbyopia is the process in which you, as you age, lose your ability to focus to closer objects because the crystalline lens in your eye stiffens so that the muscles surrounding it can no longer bend it into the shape that focuses close. Okay. And so how do progressives work again? So progressives have different regions from top to bottom that focus differently. You can kind of think of them as bifocal lenses that are blended such that the in-between isn't just like a sharp cutoff, but a gradual change. In exchange for the, that gradualness, though, you lose out on some quality in the periphery. You also have to move your head around to focus your eyes, right? Right. So because the top is usually for far and the bottom is for near, you have to tilt your neck up and down in order to focus instead of, you know, having your eyes do the refocusing. And what about monofocals? So monovision gets its name from monocles in the past. So you're <laughs> correcting one eye for close and not the other eye. Usually people use it for contacts today because progressives are a lot harder to get working in contact form because you have to have contact lenses that go up and down. But monovision right. gives you a far eye and a near eye. And so there's no fiddling required for up and down directions. But what you lose out in exchange is some of the visual acuity or sharpness that you can expect. And you also lose stereo acuity. So you might be worse at figuring out exactly how far away an object is uh, with your stereo cues. Do you call them autofocals, digital glasses? I don't know if there's a nickname for these. The nickname is autofocals. Uh, digital eyeglasses is like a category of just glasses that have some sort of a digital component to them. Okay, so for the autofocals, how do they compare with monofocals and progressives? We compared them on as many metrics as we reasonably could in our study. And so we compared them for visual acuity, that is sharpness. We compared them for contrast sensitivity, for how fast they could refocus in a task performance study, and also just, you know, how, what people thought of them when they wore them. We found that in terms of visual acuity, we could maintain well over 2020 acuity. Also, dirty little secret, most people have better than 2020 acuity. It's just a historical artifact, basically, oh. that... Yeah. So when your optometrist tells you that you have better than 20-20 vision, you're actually kind of normal. You're not a superhuman. No. We, yeah. So we, we showed that autofocals maintained well over 20-20 acuity over the range of distances that we tested, which was from six meters away to as close as 40 centimeters in our study. If you look at progressives or monovision, they actually show a trend where they decrease in acuity as you get closer. And in monovision's case, it was actually worse than 20-20 at the closest distance. So at 40 centimeters, it was worse than 20-20 vision. And 40 centimeters is totally wor like reasonable working distance for people. What about ability to focus at these different distances, how quick that went? On average, we saw that the autofocals were faster. But the biggest difference was actually in the accuracy of progressives users. My personal theory here is that progressives users, in order to maintain how fast they were trying to match these letters, actually just gave up on how accurate they were. And so we actually saw a statistically significant difference on the accuracy of progressives, whereas when trying to guess if these letters were the same or not. Oh, interesting. It sounds like they're pretty equivalent when it comes to what people are used to wearing. But what about the way they felt? I mean, I looked at a picture of these autofocals and they're bulky to say the least. Yeah. So this was definitely something we asked them about. And as you might expect, glasses that look like a VR headset aren't as comfortable as normal glasses. 
And we actually, in our earlier, an earlier prototype that we just tested internally, tried to put them in a glasses form factor, but the hardware that was required is just so heavy that it just rests all on your nose and your temples. And it's actually even worse, which is why we went back to that VR headset prototype. How does this technology that you're working on here relate to VR? It seems like a lot of the components are shared between the two. Yeah, so it's uh, it's not a coincidence. We actually use we work a lot on VR in our lab. A lot of the components we use are exactly straight out of VR. So we use uh, depth cameras, which are used in AR devices, for example, to see how far away everything is. We use eye trackers, which let us figure out what you're looking at. And so a lot of our expertise was in VR, and we kind of turned that around and wanted to apply it to presbyopia in a way that would be maybe more useful for a different set of people. The people that you tested your technology in, they already wore glasses. They already had progressives. They already had monovision. So did you have to accommodate the fact that they had a prescription glasses for your testing? In order to make sure that we could test a wide variety of people and not just those that had perfect far vision, we had a offset lens slot in front of our glasses so that we could basically just swap out uh, optometrist trial lenses to account for their stigmatism or their near and far correction. Have you worn these autofocals and, and what was your experience with that? So I have worn the autofocals. My first thought was honestly that I was like, wow, it works, thank God. Um, <laughs> But interesting little fact is that if you wear autofocals and you're not a presbyope, you're actually inducing the same problem as VR because the goal of presbyopia corrections is to make sure that everything you see is optically far away so the eye doesn't have to refocus closer. But if you do that to someone who can refocus, you're just going to confuse their visual system. Not for people who don't need glasses. Correct. Could you adapt this system to, you know, many, many different kinds of eye issues? Yes, you can totally adjust it to several different types of eye conditions, not every type of eye condition. For example, we can't dynamically correct astigmatism because really just using the offset trial lenses and you would just buy like lenses that have astigmatism correction. But for people that don't have astigmatism, that just need that near or farsightedness correction, you could imagine how your power changes over time, especially when you're younger. You could imagine setting up the autofocal so that, you know, you buy the pair at the beginning and you set it to some low power. And as your vision maybe changes for the better or for the worse as you age, and in this context, as you age as a child and your power changes, you just update your little button inside the autofocals that says, okay, my power went from 0.5 to one. So I just want to not change my glasses and just update them. And it would be that easy. Thank you so much, Natish. Natish Padmanaban is a PhD candidate in the Electrical Engineering Department at Stanford University. You can find a link to his science advances paper at sciencemag.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. 
When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.